Hello and welcome. My name's Mike. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church and it's Watch It Baptist Church online that you're watching just now. I've come slightly away from my study to a place in St Woodland, not too far away from where I live. And we're going to be starting a new series at the start of this new year. So happy new year to you. We're going to be beginning uh, a, a series that's going to take us right through January, looking at Matthew chapter 16. We're just going to take the first four verses this first time round, so I'll read those in a moment. But before we go any further, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you take care of the words that I say? Would you mind them? Would you, by your Spirit, put them where they need to be? Take away the ones that don't need to be heard. Reinforce the ones that do. And would you, by your Holy Spirit, be with us as we listen, that we might be encouraged and inspired and challenged and transformed through your very special scripture. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so around me you'll hear some sounds of wind blowing in the trees. It shouldn't be too noisy. Um, what I will get maybe is a pitter-patter noise. So from time to time, acorns are falling from trees. Uh, and so you might get a little bit of that going on. It is catching me out a little bit, so I might look to the left and right. And if I'm really unfortunate, one might hit me on the head. But let's hope it doesn't come to that. So we're looking at Matthew 16 and verses 1 to 4. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, the NLT. One day, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, you know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign, but the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. I've just worn my glasses for doing that reading, and I wear them because I see better with them on. I see better for lots of things. I've noticed recently that actually when I'm eating, I don't necessarily see my food too well if I'm not wearing my glasses. I haven't got to the point of wearing my glasses to have dinner yet, but it may come to that. Different devices are used for helping us see different things. Microscopes, which I've not touched since I was at school, but for seeing things really tiny. Telescopes for things that are far away. Binoculars, maybe, if you're at the opera or a sporting event. Maybe particularly if you're at the cricket, if you have the common sense to go and watch some. Anyway, being able to see things is really important. It helps us make sense of what they are. It helps us to be able to understand what's in front of us. Now, I want to have a look at all four verses in this, uh, this, this little short passage at the start of Matthew 16. But I want to make sure that we take away something of the importance of being able to see clearly and recognize what's in front of us but we'll start with verse one verse one said this one day the pharisees and sadducees came to test jesus demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority interesting isn't it that he was still needing to prove his authority at this point i suggest to you that possibly what was happening was that they didn't want to prove his authority but maybe to demonstrate that he didn't have any which is what they believed they wanted to discredit him 
And what's interesting about that is that they do this by asking him to perform a miracle, which is an odd choice in a way because he's been performing miracles all the way through his ministry with no real difficulty. So why they think this would be a problem is hard to gauge. Also significantly, this is the Pharisees and Sadducees. They don't really get on, but they're willing to team up to discredit Jesus and limit his impact. It's quite likely that it saw him as a, maybe distractions too, too weak a word, as a real danger, as a, re, as a leader of rebellion, not just against uh, Roman authority, which I don't suppose was that big a deal to them, but to the authority that they owned in the Jewish nation. Pharisees have started out as a church planting sect or synagogue planting sect, but have got bogged down in all the minutiae of all the different ways in which they felt people should live legalistically. The Sadducees were, compromises is probably a bit of a mean word, but they were pragmatists and they didn't believe in life after death or resurrection or anything like that. But they did have quite a significant hold on the Jewish High Council. And so they had their own reasons for wanting to hold on to their authority. Generally speaking, the, the sort of Herod camp of how things worked, that's the, one of the rulers, um, kind of proxy kings that the Romans had put in place. Um, Herod had a, a kind of alliance with Sadducees, so there's a link there. So, so what we find is that the Pharisees and Sadducees are willing to ally with each other in order to fight the kingdom, in order to discredit Jesus and make him somehow less. It's interesting too that this resonates, this demand resonates with something in our own culture and it's kind of a demand for proof. We have quite a science-based culture around us now which is in lots of ways a good thing and as a result of developing uh, standards of education in the western world, increased literacy, things like that. People have a desire to understand things and want to be able to get their head around everything before they do anything about it, before they decide what they believe. And so proof becomes really important. I'm a big fan of um, Paul Simon, and he has a song called Proof, where he says, um, uh, faith is an island in the setting sun, but proof is the bottom line for everyone. And I wonder whether part of what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing was saying, we need you to prove that you can do this, or we need to prove that you can't, so that we can convince people one way or the other. I wonder how important proof is to you. I wonder how important it is to you that you don't commit to things unless you know how they're going to play out and what direction they're going to go in. I think the other question that's worth taking away from this, not least because I think one of the healthiest things we can do in Matthew's Gospel is to put ourselves in the position of the Pharisee and ask ourselves in what way Jesus' questioning of them or reaction to them or challenging of them is a challenge to us. I know we tend to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys and we don't want to think ourselves bad guys, but I think those of us in the church culture need to be really aware that being Pharisee-like is a real danger. So that's verse one. I wanted to then look at verses two and three, and it's here that I think we really um, get our sense of how we see things clearly. So Jesus talks about signs and how we read them, and he starts with a basic one, which is you can tell what the weather's going to be like tomorrow from what the weather is like tonight. Or you can tell what the weather's going to be like through the day because of how it is in the morning. Now, I wasn't taught this particular 
uh, bit of folk wisdom in quite the same language. Red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. I was taught red sky at night, shepherd's delight, and red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. I guess the rhyme thing was um, helpful to some people. My big sister would then add, if anyone said it, minced lamb and mashed potato, shepherd's pie, but that's not quite the same. Jesus says there are things you can see and you know what's coming because you can see them. But, he says, you seem to be capable of looking something square in the face and not knowing what it means. And it's like he's saying, what's with that? You've got all the equipment, you've got the lenses, you've got the telescope you need to see what's coming from far away. You've got the microscope you need to see what's close in detail. I, I am aware that some of this stuff wasn't really in circulation in the first century. Um, Roman Empire but you can see what I mean you are equipped to be able to see what's right in front of you but you somehow seem to miss it incidentally I see a little parallel here with Jesus saying get the log out of your own eye before you try and get rid of the speck out of your brother's eye sometimes we can't see clearly what's right in front of us particularly when it has to do with our own ability to perceive accurately Jesus says that the signs of the times have to be read you have to actually concentrate on understanding them you can't expect the whole thing just to be obvious in your face red sky at night shepherd's delight brilliant really clear to see i think i learned that when i was six i know it now but reading a culture or understanding how god is working requires a little bit more concentration it isn't automatically understandable and as if that wasn't obvious enough to us just from living it should also be obvious to us by the way in which Jesus taught how many parables did he go for and how many times did the disciples say can he just explain that to us please because we don't really get it we know that Jesus told parables so that people would go away and think and so when Jesus talks about the ability to read the signs of the times he's saying you're gonna have to put some effort into this and it's not necessarily gonna be what you assume and it's not necessarily gonna be what looks obvious i think it's almost like he's saying so you can see the sky is red in the distance very well done what you seem to be missing is there's a forest fire right in front of you that's very red and very hot and right in your face and you don't seem to notice it again as jesus challenges the pharisees he challenges us how are we missing the signs of the times in front of us now for jesus he's saying i'm here i'm right in front of your face in fact elsewhere in john's gospel he says uh, to Pharisees it says you you read the scriptures because you believe that from them comes eternal life actually I'm standing here right in front of you and I bring eternal life why can't you see that it's a reminder that even something as holy and wonderful it's got got a bit louder the wind's broken up broken up there's definitely more acorns falling around me where was I Um, things being obvious in front of us that we have this presence of God in front of us if we're first century and, and living in, uh, in Judea and Jesus is there. We have God standing in front of us and yet we keep going back to something else. So there is a danger. Something is holy and wonderful and full of depth and mystery as scripture itself can end up being an idol. We can end up focusing so much on it that we don't notice Jesus standing in front of us. Yes, scripture reveals Jesus, but scripture isn't Jesus. Jesus is, and he is king. The Bible is not. 
Anyway, let's not get too distracted there. There are signs in front of us. So what are they for us in this culture at this time? Well, I want to say that one of the big signs for us is the end of Christendom. The culture that lots of us grew up in, that was basically built around what might be called good Christian values, has ebbed away. It's, it's eroded and its effectiveness is kind of gone. You think of all those bits of scripture that focus on how the poor need to be protected and looked after, how prioritising the poor is something Jesus looks for. And then you look at the way in which our culture treats, treats those who aren't wealthy, who aren't affluent. You'll notice that when political parties are talking through tax policies, they generally are trying to um, impress those who are wealthy or middle class. They're not trying to say to those who have very little or nothing, this is how we're going to help you. It's really important that we recognise the culture around us as a sign of the times. This is not a moment in our history, in the Western world, where people assume God is relevant. It's not a time when people are assuming that if something goes wrong, the obvious response is to pray. Many of them will, but it's not a cultural assumption. It is sometimes an individual one. We rely on people remembering that their grandparents prayed for them. Or, or that they have a distant cousin who goes to church. These are the signs of the times. They are the things that push us to mission. They're the things that push us to be, talk about, share, live Jesus to the world around us. Read your culture, Jesus says. Read your circumstances. Read the history around you. Read the presence of God right now where you are and how that's working and how it's relevant. Because if you don't do that, you will cruise on by, or you will coast along out of gear, not really being under control and at risk of not being able to handle the next junction. You can tell I've been doing driving practice recently. It's that kind of risk. You don't read the, the signs of the times well. You don't try to read them at all, but assume things will just work out all right because God is sovereign. And you're missing out on a big part of how free will works, of how grace works. We've got to get away from this idea that because we trust God, things will just work out well. There are plenty of circumstances you can think of in your own walk with Jesus, if you've been following him for any amount of time at all, where you can say, I think I might have stuffed up something God wanted to do. Or I think I might have been a good influence in that situation, but because I was tempted or because I was lazy, I wasn't. We are capable of messing with God's best. We need to read his presence in our situation so that we might bring him with us so that his will, that his guidance, that his wisdom, that the spirit in all his power and love and compassion might be seen in us and where we're going. Verse four. In here... In this one verse, there are four things I wanted to pick up, and I will be very brief with them. The first is that Jesus doesn't owe us anything. So when they demand a sign, and he says, I'm not going to give you one, anything except the sign of Jonah, part of what he's saying is, I don't owe you this, you know. Just because you want answers, it doesn't mean I have to give them to you. Not because I want to be contrary, but because I don't answer to you. You have no authority over me. The Father does. But you don't. You don't get to instruct me what to do. And if you feel that's a bit mean-spirited, remember this is the same God 
the same Jesus who just gives and he gives and he gives and he gives. Do you know the, the earlier reference to the sign of Jonah is in Matthew 12 and here we are in Matthew 16 so it's a second reference to the same sign and in between Jesus has done countless things out of love and grace and compassion. He's not mean-spirited but just because he's kind and good it doesn't mean he just has to do whatever we ask him and it doesn't mean we have authority over him even though he may well choose to do what we ask. Ultimately, the sign of Jonah is this. It's the sign of the resurrection. You go back to Matthew 12, you can see how Jesus kind of explains this. Jonah does three days in the belly of the big fish. And then he is returned to the land of the living. And so for Jesus, his own death and resurrection will be the sign that he has authority. He doesn't need to claim it now. He knows it's coming. And that is enough. And do we see it? Do we see the authority that Jesus has? Do we recognise that his resurrection actually has already given him victory? Maybe it was different for the Pharisees and Sadducees because they hadn't seen this coming and neither had the disciples. But we have it in our history. A key part of how we get to be followers of Jesus is knowing that he has already triumphed. And while that's yet to come to completion, it is still a fact that underpins our faith. Except that where we end up going back to Jesus and say, we need a sign, we need to just check that your authority is good. We need to just be certain that you're on our side. We don't read the signs of the times and we fall back on this, can you just prove yourself again thing. What we end up doing is sitting in a waiting room the whole time. Because our trust has never actually taken us to a point where we can do anything with it where we're so dependent on whatever the foundation is that we believe we stand on, that the reality of trusting Jesus with the future goes. We want to reach out, but we can't quite manage to take our feet from where we are. We can't step on into something new. Because we're too frightened. If our feet don't stay planted, something awful is going to happen. What kind of God do we say we trust in if we think that's how it's going to be? So we need to read the signs of the times and we need to then trust Jesus to be himself and trust him to go with us and trust his spirit to inhabit us and then take those steps of faith. Step into new things and different things and, I don't know, ask for renewal, ask for courage. Didn't we say this a year ago? That courage was such a big part of how we do things going forward haven't we said before that if we're not a church willing to take risks in jesus name then we're not actually a church at all because we're still depending on our own ability to understand and not on the spirit's ability to provide for us wherever we go finally in the middle of that sign in jesus insistence that the sign of jonah is the only sign that matters we see resurrection and this is also part of how we read the signs of the times, how we read our culture, how we read our community, how we read the Western world around us. Because you know what it's crying out for is new life. So many people so shackled and, and held back by, by fear, by whatever guilt they're dragging with them, by whatever baggage emotionally holds onto them. 
like some kind of rucksack-shaped limpet. All kinds of science fiction images might run through your head. The thing is, if we're not careful, we don't trust in that new life. We're given it, and we have to hold on to it, and we hope that nobody tries to take it away from us. We definitely don't try to pass it on. This is the essence of the victory and authority of Jesus is his resurrection. New life is what we preach. Interestingly enough, we don't preach sin management. We recognise that sin is a great corruption that stains us and hurts us and harms those around us. It shapes us in all the wrong ways. It's a part of our nature and it messes with who we are rather than without it being whoever Jesus would give us to be. But we're stuck. Stuck in an old life. Stuck not offering new life. Stuck not sharing the triumph. So I'm going to finish by saying this. We must use our glasses and any other lenses available to us to read the times through the lens the Spirit gives us so we can see what God sees and respond how Jesus would respond. We must see clearly. We must read those signs and then we must respond to them. We must live in a way that shows that we understand the times we're living in, the circumstances of our day to day. And we need to put our trust in Jesus at the heart of how we do that because we won't cope on our own and neither should we try. We should depend entirely on Jesus, the sign of his resurrection and his place in the times around us. Let's pray. Father God, we ask for confidence enough in your love and faithfulness that we might strike out, set out into the world around us in your name and in confidence that you won't abandon us there. Lord Jesus, we ask that we might follow you and be confident of your triumph and live it out. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us carry love into all that we do how we interact with each other, how we read the times around us and how we carry Jesus into those times. Amen. Okay, we're going to continue this year with asking three questions after each teaching. So our first question this time around is this. What are the oppositions that you face as you try to follow Jesus? And in what ways do they gang up with each other to stop you, or at least to try? Question two, how will the disciples around you help you to read the times? Because you know what, if we try and do this thing by ourselves, we are rejecting one of the best gifts that Jesus ever gives, which is his body, the church, around us. So how are you going to call on the other disciples around you to help you read the times together so that you can understand them and respond to them in a way that brings Jesus into the world around you? Question three. How do you experience new life? I don't just mean how have you experienced new life when you first met Jesus perhaps or you first proclaimed him at your baptism or something like that. I don't mean that. I mean how do you recognize new life in who you are day to day how has jesus brought new life to you in this day 
or last week or a month ago. It's worth thinking about this because if we don't recognise how new life is part of us, how are we ever going to tell a world that doesn't know Jesus about the new life that he offers? Well, thank you for being with us. That's it for this time. Next time, we'll be looking at the next chunk in that chapter. And I'll see you soon.